Thomas is going to read Matthew uh, chapter 28 for us. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other, and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven um, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met the elders and devised their plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away. While we were asleep, um, if, if his support gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circu circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's really struck me this week that at the moment, people really seem to be looking for hope. Maybe for you, hope is in getting two doses of the vaccination, or maybe it's in the pubs or the shops opening again in a, a week or so, or perhaps it's in seeing family or going on holiday abroad. Over the last year or so, I think it's fair to say that our lives have been turned upside down all in an effort to prevent the spread of COVID and to stop people from dying. But the thing is, when COVID is gone, death will still be there. We will eventually see the back of COVID, of restrictions and of masks, but death isn't going away anytime soon. Surely real hope should be in something that doesn't just deal with COVID, but deals with the dark shadow that stands behind COVID, the shadow that we hate to be reminded of, death. Imagine a hope that even overcame death. Well, the resurrection of Jesus tells us we don't need to imagine. As we look at today's passage, I'm going to ask three questions. Firstly, what happened? Secondly, is there any evidence? And thirdly, what if it's true? Now, to make any sense of this passage, we first need to understand what's happened already. Jesus has spent three years travelling around Israel, warning people of the coming kingdom of God and calling them to repent and believe. The lives of his followers have been turned upside down. They've left behind families, jobs and houses. Now, Jesus repeatedly told them 
that his mission involved being crucified and then that three days later he would rise again. I, I don't know if they didn't hear him, if they didn't understand him or if they just chose to ignore him. But in the last few chapters of Matthew, we don't see the disciples preparing for what they knew was coming. Quite the opposite. They come across as broken and defeated. At the crucifixion, not one of them was ready to call it a good Friday. Less than a week earlier, Jesus is welcomed to Jerusalem as a hero. Crowds cheer for him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. There is a great sense of expectation for what is going to happen. But only a few days later, the excitement is gone. As Jesus dies, Matthew paints a picture of the hope of the disciples dying with him. As we get to Matthew 28, Jesus has been crucified and placed in a tomb. The tomb is sealed and guards are set to watch over it. The last thing that Matthew has told us about the disciples is that one of them betrayed him. They all ran from him when he was arrested and one of them denied knowing him three times. It's now dawn on the Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. The crowds have disappeared and they've been replaced with just two women in verse one who went to look at the tomb. One woman is simply referred to as the other Mary and one is specifically named as Mary Magdalene. She's been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. Before meeting Jesus, she would have been written off as a nobody, as an outcast. And yet Jesus treated her with love and respect and has given her dignity and hope. But this hope has been crushed by the religious leaders and the Roman Empire. Before reading any further, I think it's really important to acknowledge this is the mood that is set at the beginning of the chapter. Not expectation, but crushed hope, which makes the next verse even more incredible. Verse two, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. The sight of this angel in all his splendour was enough to frighten a group of soldiers to the point that they are paralysed. Verse 4 says they became like dead men. Now, the angel was probably expecting the same reaction from the two women because he says, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. And I love the line in verse six. It feels like a gentle reprimand that they'd forgotten what Jesus had said to them numerous times. He is not here. He has risen. Just like he said. The woman had probably still stood there dumbfounded. So he continues, look, I'll show you. Come and see the place where he did lay. The angel instructs the women to go and tell the disciples the best news they will ever hear the best news that anyone will ever hear verse 7 he has risen from the dead the women hurry away and what a wonderful description in verse 8 afraid yet filled with joy think of the emotional roller coaster these women have been on in the last few days and just when they think they can't take any anymore something happens which makes this mighty angel look completely insignificant verse 9 Suddenly, Jesus meets them. The last time they'd seen Jesus, he would have been almost unrecognisable, covered in blood, covered in blood and not only physically broken, but spiritually crushed. They watched as the saviour they loved lost his life painfully and violently. 
And now they stand, and now here he is standing before them. Greetings, he says. And notice verse nine. The person who stood before them was not some spiritual mirage, but a, a risen man with fresh flesh and bones, someone who could actually take hold of, which they did. All they could do was fall on the floor, clasp his feet and worship him. Now, the risen Jesus would later appear to hundreds of others at various times. But don't miss the beauty of this moment. Jesus doesn't first appear to kings or rulers, to the influential and the important. He appears to someone who is considered as nothing. The world has written Mary off as worthless. And yet the risen son of God chooses her as the first person to appear to. He shows us the incredible kingdom that Jesus will establish is going to turn everything upside down. In verses 11 to 15, we see the guards going to the city with their tail between their legs to report what had happened. I think that they go to the high priest first because they know that if they go to Pontius Pilate and tell him the story that actually happened, they'll probably be killed on the spot. But much like the trial of Jesus, the religious leaders aren't interested in actually investigating what happened. They instead invent their own story and tell the guards that is what they must spread. Verse 16 to 20, the final verses of Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus appears to his disciple and give them instructions on how they should now live because he is risen. Now, before exploring this a little further, I think we need to stop and acknowledge something about the Christian faith. That it stands or falls on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Not on some spiritual, philosophical, wishy-washy nonsense, but on a historical fact. So let's just spend a few minutes examining the evidence, which is point two. Is there any evidence? Now, before considering the resurrection specifically, it's important to acknowledge that there's not really any debate over whether Jesus was a real historical person. It's widely accepted both among Christian and non-Christian scholars that there was a man from Nazareth who was born about 2000 years ago. It's also widely accepted that this man was killed by crucifixion and is recorded in numerous historically credible manuscripts inside and outside of the Bible. There are historical records of an earthquake and a strange darkness on the day of his crucifixion. One scholar claims that the burial of Jesus in the tomb is one of the earliest and best attested facts that we have about Jesus. So the question is not really, did Jesus live? It's not even, did he die? The question we need to ask, and the question which is key, is did he come back to life? We'll briefly examine the evidence under two headings. So firstly, we need to choose our miracle. Now, some might say I can accept that Jesus died, lived and died. But come on, all this talk about miracles in the 21st century. It's just childish. You see, on the face of it, we're presented with a choice. Believe in miracles or don't believe in them. And many choose not to believe in them. But actually, that's not the choice we're presented with. Whether you believe in the resurrection or not, you cannot deny something miraculous happened on the first Easter Sunday. Something which went on to change the world. When Jesus died, his followers had abandoned him and they were a broken mess. 
Days later, something changed in them to cause them to fearlessly proclaim the gospel, even if it would cost them their own lives. Now, you might well say, well, it's a conspiracy, isn't it? His disciples, who let's not forget were predominantly a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, somehow managed to overpower without killing a load of Roman guards and then steal Jesus's body and make it look like he'd risen and then go on to convince everybody that that's exactly what had happened. The big problem with this explanation is, though, I know that a lot of people throughout history have died for something which turned out later to be a lie. But to be willing to die for something you know to be a lie, I mean, that's ridiculous. Something happened on Easter Sunday that turned a bunch of men who abandoned and denied Jesus, who saw the cross as a failure and never really got what Jesus was about, who were, who were fighting over who was the most important and who seemed to view the most vulnerable in society as an inconvenience. It changed these same men into courageous, loving, godly and kind men who lived their lives giving up everything they had to share it with others, to share the good news with others. These men believed with such conviction that most of them died for their faith and they didn't die rich with the money from all the people they duped over the years. They died with barely a penny to their name, believing that their main reward was not going to come in this life, but coming after death. What they believed was so attractive that other people, that there would begin a movement which would 2000 years later would spread around the world and cause nearly a third of the world's population to class themselves as Christians. Something miraculous happened on Easter Sunday. And in my mind, the most plausible explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Secondly, if this was a fraud, it was the world's worst attempt at fraud. Now, I've had to go to court quite a few times over the years. It's generally a combination of boring because you have to wait around for so long and intimidating, knowing that every word is going to be cross-examined and questioned. But there is one thing that makes the whole thing far more enjoyable. When a defendant decides to represent themselves, there's one particular court case that stands out in my mind where the defendant, among other things, had been charged with assaulting a police officer. Now, to protect his identity and so that I don't offend anyone else on this call, we'll refer to him as Dave. Dave was defending himself and he cross-examined me. His question went something like this. <clears throat> Officer, yeah, look, I know I hit you in it, but after you arrested me, when I calmed down, I did say sorry in it. I, I just said, yes, that is all absolutely correct. He looked very pleased with himself. The prosecution barrister simply said, no further questions, Your Honour. Now, this may surprise you, but despite Dave's watertight defence, he was found guilty. Now, if we're to believe that this, the disciples faked the whole thing, it's fair to say that they must have studied at the same school of how not to do it that Dave did. So firstly, their choice of witnesses. In first century Israel, a woman was to all intents and purposes, a second class citizen. They weren't even allowed to testify in court. So if you were looking for credible witnesses to be at the very center of your lie, you wouldn't choose two women. Secondly, 
If I was making it up, I'd make sure that the fake witnesses actually saw the moment that Jesus was risen, not just seeing him afterwards. Thirdly, as the people who'd been spreading this story, you'd want the account that was portrayed to portray you in a credible light, not as those who abandoned the one you're trying to convince other people to follow. And look at verse 17. It doesn't exactly fill prospective converts with much confidence. When they saw him, this is the disciples, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. This is the disciples. And you're telling me that they doubted after they'd seen the risen Jesus. Why on earth would you include a sentence like that? Fourthly, I would want a really tight grip on who knew the lie. The gospel, of, uh, the gospel in the book of Acts tells us that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people over a period of several weeks. Now, that's going to make that lie very difficult to control. It's very difficult to understand why the account of Jesus's resurrection is recorded in this way. Unless, of course, it actually happened. Unless it was true, because in real life, you don't get to pick your witnesses or determine exactly what they see. If your account is honest and factual, then you will include stuff, even if it makes you look bad. The fact that the gospel writers include facts that actually weaken their argument is actually a pretty good indication that they're telling the truth. Now, there's loads more evidence that supports the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. If this is something you're not sure about, can I encourage you to investigate further? Two resources I can recommend and the church would love to give to you if you'll read them are um, a shorter one. is called Love Story, The Myth That Really Happened by Glenn Scrivener. It's excellent. It's even available on audiobook. You can listen to it from start to finish in one hour and 18 minutes. Another slightly longer one is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's even been turned into a movie and is available on Amazon Prime. Lee Strobel is an investigative journalist whose wife becomes a Christian. So he sets out to show her that the Christian faith is a load of nonsense. The thing is, when he really investigates the facts, he reluctantly realises that the resurrection is the only plausible explanation and he actually becomes a Christian. But why would you spend your time investigating it? Well, in short, because if it's true, it changes everything. If Jesus raised, rose from the dead, it means everything is different. I'm going to finish this morning by looking at three answers to the question, what if the resurrection is true? So firstly, it means that Jesus has power over death. Death has often been referred to as the great equaliser. That's because it doesn't matter what you have or have not done, how good you've been or how bad you've been, how rich you are or how poor you are. Death takes everybody. But what if death was not the end? What if there was someone so beautiful and holy and pure that death could not hold him? As anyone who has lost a loved one will tell you, the sting of death is that it is permanent. It is irreversible. Reflecting on this in the light of Jesus's resurrection is what caused the Apostle Paul to mock death in 1 Corinthians, a little further from the passage which has been read for us already this morning. It's, he says, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Jesus, rising from the dead, 
means he has power over death. Because he's emerged from the other side of death, we know that he can bring us through as well. There's growing excitement in the scientific world that one day in the not too distant future, we'll have the technology to copy the data in your brain onto a computer where you will be backed up and added to a virtual cloud. It's being sold as immortality. Now, if you think being saved to a big floppy disk is going to is something to get excited about, fill your boots. Me, I'm interested in the one who promises a real physical resurrection a new body free from the curse of sin and able to live forever. And it's not some empty promise. He leads by example, because he rose, his people will rise also. Imagine if the moment that you took your last breath was not something to be scared of, but a reason to rejoice. Imagine if it were not the end, but really just the beginning. The resurrection tells us, you don't need to imagine. Secondly, Jesus keeps his promises, even the ones which look impossible. Jesus said numerous times that he would suffer and die, but then on the third day he would rise again, and he did. It was an unbelievable promise that Jesus kept. The resurrection shows us that Jesus will keep all his promises, this includes his promise of the forgiveness of sins for those who would repent and trust in him. It includes his promise that he has gone ahead of us to his father's house to prepare a place for us. It includes the promise that he is the way, the truth and the life. And that he doesn't just give us life, but life to the full. That he will never leave or forsake us. That he will bind the brokenhearted and release captive sinners that if he sets you free, you will be free indeed. That if you put your delight in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. That if you come to him feeling weary and burdened, he will give you rest. That he is gentle and humble in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. As Paul puts it, the resurrection tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt, all the promises of God are yes in him, in Jesus Christ. Now that is good news worth investigating. Thirdly, the one who loved you enough to die for you has all authority. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Apostle Paul expounds this further in Ephesians, where he says, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Not only is Christ risen, he is now seated at the right hand of God with all authority. Sitting at the right hand of the throne doesn't really mean much today, but ancients knew it was a seat that was reserved for the one who was highly favoured, and who executed the royal power of the king. So if the king's on the throne, the prime minister was the one at his right hand. Imagine knowing that the one who executes the will of the Almighty loved you enough to die for you. Once again, the resurrection tells us you don't need to imagine because, because Jesus rose, he is now in heaven running the world. The one who loves you enough to die for you is now in charge. 
that means you don't have to worry about anything. There's a great example of what this looks like in the book of Acts. Stephen was the first man to be killed for his faith in Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 6 and 7. One thing that really stands out in this trial and subsequent execution by stoning is how peaceful and fearless Stephen is. With his final words, he prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. How on earth does he do this? Because of Acts chapter 7 verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen got it. The one who was orchestrating events loved him enough to die for him. He knew that Jesus is in control and that he is good. He knew he didn't have to fear death and whatever happened, Jesus would use it for God's glory and for Stephen's good. He knew it because he'd seen the ultimate example of it. The death of Christ on a cross is the worst thing that ever happened. And yet God was able to bring from it the greatest thing that ever happened. The perfect display of God's glory and rescuing God's people through denying, through dying in their place. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, those who trust in him know that they need not fear anything the world throws at them. Global pandemics, economic downturn, unemployment, difficult relationships, loneliness and anything else you can think of. None of it is outside of the control of the one who loved you enough to die for you. It's not a promise that your life will be easy. In fact, Jesus warns us it will be hard. But Jesus's resurrection means that even in the face of hardship and suffering, we can trust in a good God who is in control, a God who can bring light out of darkness, beauty from ashes. Because of the resurrection, Christians have a saviour who, as verse 20 tells us, is with us always to the end of the age. A saviour who gave us a hope which goes beyond the grave. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. Will you examine the evidence? Will you consider the claim that changed the world? Will you let yourself imagine a hope beyond the grave, an eternity of joy and peace and contentment? Will you imagine a new creation with no more pain or suffering? Will you imagine a saviour who is able to offer the one thing you need more than anything else? The one thing that separates you from a perfect God, the forgiveness of sins. Will you imagine a saviour who knows even your darkest secret and yet loves you enough to die for you? The resurrection of Jesus tells us you don't need to imagine. You need to repent and believe in him.